Dr. Balpin, Kim Brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Thursday. It's a weekly Monday appearance, except he's made it, in this case, on a Thursday. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest and on this edition of the program, as he does every week. Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball of particular note this week. The World Series, naturally. Houston Astros, of course, beat the Los Angeles Dodgers in seven games. And it's the pitcher who was on the mound for the last four innings for the winning team that's of some interest here. Charlie Morton threw four innings, allowing just a single run, frequently hitting 99 miles per hour with his fastball and throwing a curveball that was most often unhittable. It's a departure from the pitcher he has been for most of his career, pitcher who sat in the low 90s and who lacked any sort of sufficient pitch to deal with left-handers. Even in his early 30s, Charlie Morton underwent, has undergone a striking transformation. And the question is, if Charlie Morton could do this, is it possible that just any player really any person happening to walk by Minute Maid Park can become an elite ball player. The answer, of course, is no. But what I asked Dave Cameron is what conditions are necessary, what conditions must be present for a player to transform from something more mediocre to something more elite. Dave Cameron comments on that at some length. Also, how the Astros have changed the way in which they share information with players, perhaps less of a top-down and more of a collaborative approach. Also, Dave Roberts and managerial courage. A couple times during the World Series, Dave Roberts took out Rich Hill and one time was booed by his own fans for doing so. As Dave Cameron about the difficulties for a manager of making unpopular but also logically sound decisions. Finally, at one point in the conversation, I mentioned to Cameron that I'm optimistic about the direction in which Fangraphs Audio is headed as a program because of the quality of the last few episodes. Dave Cameron takes the opportunity uh, to shatter that optimism. This level of irrational recency bias exists in the human nature. Hurtful, painful stuff from Dave Cameron. Conversation with him in one moment. Uh, But first, it is both my privilege and also my professional obligation to remind everyone that Fangraphs memberships exist. For a reasonable sum, readers of Fangraphs.com could support the excellent work that appears at that site. And for a slightly less reasonable sum, those same readers uh, uh, can also acquire an ad-free membership, which allows one to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads, both facilitating faster loading speeds and also liberating one from the distortive effects of advertising. Fangraphs membership and ad-free membership, available only at Fangraphs.com, naturally. Okay, uh, with this notice now complete... We will move on to a conversation. What is it? It's Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. Hey, you know how uh, what I will frequently do is to begin the podcast by... Uh, I suppose presenting to you a scenario or idea from real life and ask you what that is like in baseball. Yeah. Well, I have no intention of doing that today because I have some questions about the playoffs. That's good to hear. Okay. <clears throat> uh, um, here, at, see, you wrote today, you wrote for today about Charlie Morton. Yeah. Um, who, of course, was excellent. How much of his outing did you see last night before uh, sleep overcame you? Well, I don't know how long. How much longer? How long did I stay in the chat through his? Oh, that's why I don't. I don't remember when you left. Yeah, neither do I. I. It's all a blur. Do you do you remember watching Charlie Morton pitch last night? Yes, I do. Yeah. And and of course I watched. um, I mean, I read your post today and I saw the the clips 
the relevant clips. I'm, I've saw, I I think I saw when the bat shattered with Corey Seager's bat shattered. Okay, that would have been the seventh inning or the seventh, end of the sixth. Yeah. yeah. I think I stayed into. I think I stayed into the bottom of the through the bottom of the seventh, maybe. Yeah, that sounds right. Probably. Yeah, I think I was right. I, I mean, my intention was to stay for the middle innings, but um, but we were having too important a discussion about mm-hmm. about potatoes. Kennebec potatoes. Kennebec Kennebec potatoes. Yeah. I, you have to understand. I feel a certain amount of pride with regard to Kennebec potatoes because I live, I, I live within a mile of the Kennebec River, uh, and so um, to grow Kennebec potatoes, to eat them, to know that they are popular, uh, not not simply domestically but also abroad, uh, brings me a great deal of. Uh, I re- derive pleasure from it, even though I have no. I, I mean, I didn't. I was not responsible for helping to cultivate. The kind of big potato. It's a, you I, know, think I, I live within a mile of the Deschutes River, and Deschutes Brewery is responsible for putting their beer all over the place. So it's basically the same. I suppose. I don't know. Do you have? Do you feel some sort of irrational? Do you do you der- extract a sort of irrational pride from from Deschutes beer when you see it around? No. Okay. Yeah. No. <clears throat> well, you appear to be. Uh, exhibiting reason, Dave Cameron. Congratulations. <laughs> kind of how this podcast is set up. Let's, um, <clears throat> with regard to Charlie Morton, um, yeah, so I, so I saw certainly some of his outing. I've seen a pitch earlier in the postseason. Uh, you note, here's what you establish, right? You establish that a few, you know, up, certainly up till a few years ago, he was a somewhat generic pitcher that I think probably the last couple years, um, Last year he threw like ten innings. So up until only, this year, he was he was a pretty generic pitcher. He and and he underwent. I think he underwent a couple of different sort of transformations along the way. There's been an evolution of Charlie Morton. Yeah, he came up throwing harder. I mean, not as hard as he throws now, but he was basically like a hard throwing guy. And then he tried to remake himself into Roy Halladay, like just absolutely copying Roy Halladay's delivery. Mm-hmm. And that like knocked some of his velocity down, and um, he became a slightly different kind of like he was always a ground ball pitcher, but he became like a different kind of ground ball pitcher, and really started moving away from strikeouts. And then he had some elbow problems. I mean, he had a lot of he had a lot of health problems. Right, and um, but the the so right, so there were a couple different versions of Charlie Morton, you know, between when he debuted in two thousand eight and I suppose uh, last year uh, when he pitched when he made four starts for Philadelphia. The in all all of those versions, however, were probably you could characterize them, as, you know, average at best, right? Yeah, because uh, he had a couple seasons that that weren't so bad. They were mostly sort of yeah. the pitch to contact ground ball type seasons, though. He he was at his best. He was Mike Leak. Okay, yeah, that's yeah, that sounds right. Um, um, and then of course this year, he he retained and and then even improved upon the velocity gains. He made in it in his sort of brief time with Philadelphia at the major league level. He he was throwing. I mean, we saw him in that game yesterday. I don't know. What, I don't want to say sitting ninety nine, but hitting it with some frequency. Yeah, yeah. He sat, basically sat ninety seven last night, yeah. uh, and it was eight ninety eight ninety nine with movement regularly. Right, and this curveball, which as you note in the in the post, was a bit, um, you know, it was a loopy curveball. Uh, you know, gained a bit more menace to it, and it became a weapon that he could use against against left-handers. Uh, you, I mean, you you cite the Bellinger post or the Bellinger plate appearance, and now, of course, 
maybe the degree of difficulty facing Cody Bellinger, the end of that World Series was not the same as it might have been at most points throughout the year. But I think in that... Cody, about, Cody Bellinger is still a pretty good hit. Yeah, but, and, but I think that, that plate appearance featured both the kind of back foot variety of the breaking yeah. ball and then also I think the last one was... I don't know if it's exactly where Morton meant to put it, but it was. No. It just caught the outside of the strike zone. It was effective, at least. Yeah, I mean, he basically threw like three different kinds of curveballs in that at bat, and strike one, strike two, strike three, and poor Cody Bellinger didn't have a chance. Right. I mean, I think uh, part of the reason Bellinger looked so bad in the series was that he ran into a lot of Charlie Morton and uh, Justin Verlander and Lance McCullers, and these guys just attacked him with breaking balls down and in, and he hasn't figured out how to hit that pitch yet. Right, and of course he's he's a rookie and. It's uh, there's really no way to practice uh, hitting against the best pitchers in the major leagues. Until, right. Until yeah. It's not like you can just go to the batting cage and be like, Show me the I want to see some <laughs> some like 82 mile an hour nasty curveballs at my ankles, please. Yeah. So so here's the thing though. It, it the reason why you um, are particularly interested in examining Charlie Morton and perhaps regarding him as somehow uh, symbolic of the, the 2017 season is that he did undergo this transformation, by the way, like in his 30s, right? Yeah, right. He's like 32. Yeah, well, it's, no, this was the like same. He's openly talking about retiring next this year. Is, this was, I he's mean. actually about to, he's going to turn uh, 34 in like a week. Okay, yeah. Right. So he's like almost at the end of his career and like, oh, by the way, I'm something entirely different yeah, now. Yeah, right. And and the, the point you make is that he's an extreme case, but he's not, um, he's not, um, the only such case of a player yeah. essentially transforming completely in a very short amount of time. It's and, and I think in a way that is unprecedented, at least in in our lifetimes. I mean, we're both. Yeah, I mean, when I was watching in the ninth inning last night, when uh, the second to last hitter was uh, Chris Taylor, and I was like, this is basically 2017 in a nutshell, right? Like, it's the li- final game, game seven, winner take all. Two of the best teams in baseball, maybe the two best, depending on what you feel about the Indians, but at least two of the three best teams in baseball this year. And, you know, season on the line, it's Charlie Morton and Chris Taylor. Mm-hmm. Like, like who would have, like, you could have gotten $20 million on like, a dollar on, bet. On some bet preseason. <laughs> like, just like, this is going to be the World Series matchup, and, you know, it's not like we're going to have, like, you know, they're going to run out of players. <laughs> it's going to be the 17th inning. You'd think, like, if Charlie Morton and Chris Taylor are facing each other in the World Series, there was a horrific train accident that day or something. It's like, no, these teams chose. Like, this is my leadoff hitter. This is the guy I'm handing the ball to, and I'm not taking him out. Um, and I think, I, you know, I don't remember this level of, um, variability or malleability in player skills kind of in my lifetime. Like, growing up watching baseball, I was like, Ken Griffey Jr. is really great. And he was great from the moment he got to there. And, like, he was great in high school. He was great in the major leagues. He never he only stopped being great when he got injured. But, like, this was his skill set. And, like, he certainly had guys who, um, you know, developed differently. You always had guys who were, you know, the Brady Anderson hit 50 home runs out of nowhere or something. Like, it's, it's always existed. But it feels like in this day and age, there is just far more guys who get to the majors who, you know, the scouting report on them in the minors was 88 to 92. And then all of a sudden, like, Corey Kluber, like, hey, look, now I throw 97 with a power curveball. There's just so many of these guys that it feels like we can't really make declarative statements about what a player can be because they can just change themselves so dramatically. Right, so, okay, to that point, 
and 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 I, I think it's I don't think it would be wrong to say right that both the Houston Astros and the Los Angeles Dodgers were were probably among the better teams at using information to help players uh, transform themselves. Yeah, I mean these are the two most uh, data driven teams mm-hmm. in baseball. The, so so what is so <laughs> the thing is like if they could just the the sense one has is that they could just acquire a player, a human, a human yeah. body, yeah. and then yeah. make him great. But I, I right. mean, I assume that that's not that's not true either. So what what is the right. reality in between those poles? Between as you say, yeah. you see a player when he's an amateur, you have a you have a decent notion of what the tra- the trajectory will be, you, you know, the rise to his peak, the the decline phase. You you kind of can see it. But right, you're saying is you're like this is in a way that we haven't seen before. This is complicating the the idea of peak performance, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to like I, I tried in the post not to talk about too much of, like the Astros did this because Charlie Morton found velocity like a big spike before he got to Houston, and uh, you know it's possible he would have done this anywhere. Like we don't know for like Brett Strom is a very well regarded pitching coach who's done some excellent work uh, both in St. Louis before and and now in Houston. So I'm assuming Brett Strom had a hand in this, but I wanted to say like the Astros fixed Charlie Morton. I think uh, you know we want to give credit to the player for putting in the effort, and um, you know potentially Morton would have done this anywhere, and it's not like the Astros fixed everyone, right? Like, if they could fix someone, they would have magically fixed Ken Giles three weeks ago and be like, hey, look, our good closer can get people out now. Um, but I do think that, you know, we're at a point where uh, players have bought into different kinds of instruments of learning that they haven't necessarily had access to or didn't accept previously. And so I think, you know, even something like driveline baseball, right, who... You know, Kyle's shown that he can. That's Kyle uh, Body, who's the, add, what, uh, Kyle Kyle yeah, Body, yeah. yeah. Um, he has shown that he can add velocity. If you go to go through his training program, for better or worse, there might be trade offs, or you might have you know potential command issues, you might have injury issues. Who knows? We don't know what the long term prognosis of weighted ball programs is over thirty years. But Kyle's at least shown that he can help you throw harder, right? So we, we you have guys who throw eighty seven and then they go do some kind of weighted ball work and now they throw ninety four and like you can dramatically change your what we used to think of an inherent talent level, right? Like, you know, this is who this guy is. That's not really true anymore. Now with data, you know, Charlie Morton, everyone kind of knew he had a high spin curveball, but it wasn't any good against left-handed batters. Apparently, Morton or the Astros or both figured out, hey, look, you already have the tool, you have the physical ability to spin a curveball in a way that most pitchers don't have. Here's how you turn that into outs. And so I think with some of the data, with the tools, technology, in, in the player's case, it's probably more technology, like you know, you can talk to guys, some guys about spin rate, but like a lot of them don't care. But if you can actually like show them on video and say, look, here's how this, here's how this pitch works and like, um, kind of speak their language, you can, you have a better chance of getting them to buy in. And I think we are seeing now that there's so much technology and so much data available to these players that they're no longer just saying, well, you know, I was born with 95 or I was born with 92 and this is who I am, but there's some aspiration towards yeah, I'm Jose Altuve. I'm five four. Who cares? I'm going to hit twenty five bombs anyway. Right. So here's the question I have. It, it, now, you, as you note, the, the sort of um, when analytics uh, became first integrated in 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 sort of a serious way <clears throat> in front offices, um, it w- it was employed mostly to identify 
and this, this, these are roughly your words, to, to identify players who were undervalued by the market, right? Right. Yeah. And, it was a tool for the general manager, basically. Right. And now, as you note, it goes beyond that. It's, first of all, um, it can benefit players, as you know, with a player like Mortner. I mean, there, there are a number of examples. Players can directly benefit from it. And it also would probably help teams to identify players who have a certain set of um, tools or skills that if um, essentially if coordinated somehow in a different way um, might bring about positive results. I guess the, the thing is, what are the necessary conditions? Again, to, to sort of talk about this in a way of polls. On the one hand, we have um, the player's sort of innate talent unchanging. And on the other hand, we have, um, you know, uh, Jeff Lunau signing just any person who walks by Minute Maid Park <laughs> and then, right. and you know, rendering him a, a talented professional. What are the sort of – what are necessary conditions? Do you, I think you got at one aspect of it with regard to, to identifying the spin rate with Charlie Morton. What, I mean, but what are some – what are some – I guess what are – like what, what is some raw material that would eventually lead to something better? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Like you know, I mentioned Chris Taylor was the guy who hit against Charlie Moore last night. I think Chris Taylor in the minor leagues was a low power, high contact, good defensive shortstop. That was his ticket to the big leagues. Is this guy can play can play shortstop at the big league level? He'll draw some walks. He's not going to strike out too many guys. This is kind of like your classic, you know, fringy starting shortstop slash utility guy profile. And now Chris Taylor is the starting outfielder who is kind of a power first, uh, you know, line drive. Um, hard hitting outfielder with, you know, his, his defense and center is okay, but he's certainly not like in the lineup for his glove work. Um, so he's become like a, a dramatically different player than he was a couple of years ago when the Dodgers acquired him. And it's like, how did they turn a slap hitting utility infielder into a line drive hitting outfielder? Um, perhaps if you look at it and say, okay, this guy who's making contact, in order to make contact, he is probably sacrificing some power. Is there a way in which we could adjust his swing to where he could add velocity, add quality of contact without dramatically increasing his strikeout rate? And so you think like there's maybe some hand-eye coordination here that like um, is a physical innate thing that Chris Taylor has that we don't have that can be tweaked and utilized in a different way. And I think that's one of the things that teams are probably looking at now is like what are the physical drivers of what have generally be considered kind of like the peripheral skills, right? Like we look at like walk rate and ISO and these things were kind of like core building blocks of a player's performance. But now if you look at it and say like, what are the things that lead to a player's walk rate and ISO and, and what physical skills can we identify and say, maybe this guy hasn't yet tapped it, tapped into power that he could have otherwise, you know, because we're not in the front offices and we don't have the data that they have. And we don't have, you know, there's, I think the thing about the last physical revolution was that the teams and the people on the outside, like Bill James and Rob Nyer and uh, the guys doing this kind of work 20 years ago, were all doing kind of the same thing. Now the public is not doing at all the same thing as what the teams are doing. Um, well, because you know, the, the means of acquiring the data has changed, right? right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they, and I think it's not just the means of acquiring the data, but it's the access to the players themselves, right? So, like, so much of what the teams are doing now is sitting down with a player, having a conversation having feedback from the player about what they think they can do. Be like, hey, you know, Charlie Morton, do you think you can throw harder? <laughs> like, I can't, I, you know, I can't just go talk to Charlie Morton about, um, you know, hey, here's some information. Do you want to have a conversation that you can then use 
inform back to me that I can then build into my model about, you know, whether you could throw this pitch to this part of the plate or, you know, sit down and watch a video with you and say, I think I can spin my curveball like that guy spins his curveball and let's find some curveballs that work against left-handed hitters. Like, the the teams just have access to the players in a way that the public never will. And, and so I think now... We're, you know, the public is at a disadvantage in some sense because we're trying to figure out what the teams are doing without access to the players uh, in the same way. Well, and I assume that this now, I obviously uh, historically players are are going to um, they obviously have a stake in in their own success yeah. and they'll take opportunities to get better. Um, but if you're if you're discussing perhaps strategies that are somewhat unprecedented. Um, there might be an unwillingness to to participate, right, to change, especially if a guy has had some success. I think that it brings to mind, um, not that it entirely worked out in the World Series, but the um, the willingness that you Darvish, who, you know, by all accounts has been fantastic since he debuted in the United States, uh, his willingness to... Uh, listen to and and um, I guess uh, perf- execute some adjustments after arriving the Dodgers. That might be an example of a kind of willingness um, that's that's a necessary condition to to making these changes. Yeah, I mean, I think you know one thing that's kind of lost in this whole Astros story of how they like tanked and they bottomed out and they acquired a whole bunch of good players is like they also um, took a lot of crap. Uh, probably was it five, four or five years ago, maybe five years ago, when they really started using the shift more aggressively than anyone because it was like a lost season. They didn't actually care about wins and losses that much. They were basically just going to experiment and like see what happened if you just moved your players all over the place in really, uh, unusual ways. And the players hated it, right? Like, uh, the coach, like it actually led to, uh, change in managers at one point because there was so much pushback and friction between the front office and the and the coaching staff, and there were so many stories that came out about how the players just hated Jeff Lunau and his staff, and um, and I think Lunau's even admitted like they didn't they didn't really get buy in from the players first, they just kind of treated them like pawns on a on a chessboard, and it wasn't really the right way to go about trying to push data to the players, and they had to adjust their. Uh, their way of doing it now obviously it works significantly better. Um, but the Astros were one of the first teams who were just basically like, uh, we're just going to push data down to you and dictate to you, um, you know, how you're going to change the way you've always played baseball because we know better than you do. And that, that didn't come across very well. But so one of the probably major structural changes that the Astros had to make was in how they presented the data to their players in order to say, not say like, hey, Charlie Morton, you you suck at throwing curveballs to left-handers. We're going to teach you how to do it. But approaching him in a way that would be like, hey, do you want to dramatically change who you are as a pitcher at age 33? Because we think here's a way for you to become awesome. Um, and so obviously at some point along the way, they've, um, along with a lot of other teams, uh, figured out how to get their players not just to listen to them, but to be interested in making these dramatic changes to their skill sets. Um, and I think that's opened the door now where you have players who don't necessarily see data from the front office as evil or something to be resisted, but now you have players seeking it out and saying, okay, I was a pitch-to-contact fifth starter. Mm-hmm. How can I become the guy throwing 99 to close, close out the World Series? Do you think that? Do you think that perhaps more than ever... That sort of, uh, and I, I think that uh, Travis Sotrick has written about this to some degree. That curiosity is a tool. Yeah, you think so? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's 
Um, there's players in baseball who you look at who have, you know, dr- really good physical gifts who never became better than they were when they were 21. And not that we know exactly how aptitude and learning and work ethic and all that works, but it's, you know, it's at least fairly easy to generalize and be like, ah, oh, if that guy would just learn to lay off a curveball, look what he could have become. And now, like, we don't actually know the physical response that his eyes go through when he sees the spin of a curveball. Maybe he just physically can't lay off a curveball. Uh, but I do think there, there has to be some level of difference and, um, curiosity or determination or willingness to become something different. And, you know, like, there are, you know, there are players out there who think that they're really great who aren't really great. And so I think one of the things that perhaps, uh, is a, um, a, a doorway to improving yourself is to being willing to admit what you are, right? And, and so Charlie Morton could have been very resistant and said, you know what, I've had a decent major league career. I've thrown, you know, a couple hundred innings uh, a couple times with, you know, ERAs in the threes. I get ground balls. I pitch at the bottom of the zone. I've done what my coaches have always taught me to do. I throw strikes. You know, he could repeat the Bull Durham line about strikeouts being fascist and just be like, that's not how baseball is supposed to be played. But at some point along the line, he was like, maybe I could be better than I am. And whether it was him or or a coach who got in his ear, whatever the process was, Charlie Morton was willing to say, maybe I can be better if I make these changes. And I think um, it feels like, I can't prove this because I haven't interviewed every player in baseball for the last 30 years, but it feels like players are now more willing to make drastic changes to their skill sets in order to improve themselves, and the tools are available to help them do so. Okay. I want to ask you uh, another question uh, that sort of occurred to me because of these playoffs. And I suppose I would phrase it vaguely as the hot hand, although I don't mean it as specifically as I think. Was it Rob Arthur who's done work on the hot hand over at uh, 538? Yeah. yeah. And I, I think typically he's pitching. He's talking about pitchers, isn't he? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, I don't necessarily mean it as specifically as that. I suppose it could just be the um, the influence of recent performance, right? Uh, I don't know if it's recency bias or not. There did seem to be. I think I, again. I think it's probably pretty safe to say, right, that Dave Roberts and AJ Hinch represent two of the more uh, reasonable managers in in the league. Yeah. Um, even they seem to uh, show preference for the, the for recent performance, and and. I assume that there are situations where that's where that makes a lot of sense, and there are other situations where uh, it might amount to little more than superstition. But for example, uh, obviously there was a tendency from on both on both parties to ride um, certain pitchers in relief. Like Brandon Morrow was one example, right? Even though the fact that he was like very tired, or it seemed to be very yeah. tired, he'd been used in almost every game during the postseason. Dave Roberts kept yeah. going back to him. Um, he's certainly one example. Uh, and then of course there was like, you know, I mean, Ken Giles was what he was technically on the Astros world series roster. Yeah. After game three, he basically was. Right. But right. Or game four. Right. right he wasn't used. Uh, there was also, uh, situations like, uh, the, uh, Dave Roberts decision to use Austin Barnes almost exclusively throughout the playoffs. I don't know how much. Yeah, yeah, yeah Buddy Grandall didn't get a single start. He didn't get a single start, right? But I, but I yeah. think that he got uh, what over fifty percent of the starts during the regular season, right? 
Oh, yeah, he, he was like the 70% catcher guy. And Barnes was a backup who played a little more than most backups, but part of that was him, you know, he could play the infield or, um, you know, Barnes was, it was basically the backup catcher all year, and then just when it got to October, they flipped him. Right, so, right, and of course, and this was a team, the Dodgers, which, you know, with the exception of a uh, striking and somewhat strange uh, spell of losing, what, at the beginning of September or whatever, um, yeah. was they were one of the, outside of that, they were one of the best clubs of all time. So yeah. I guess I'm curious to what degree, to what degree it makes sense for a manager to trust those players that have been quite good recently and in what other situations it it makes sense to sort of expand usage even in games that are as um, you know essential to winning a championship as those in the World Series yeah I mean I think you know while um, on-field decision making has advanced dramatically um, there is still and probably always will be a human instinct to avoid criticism right it's like I was amazed and impressed by Dave Roberts willingness to take Rich Hill out of the game in game six uh, with 60 pitches with one out to go in the fifth inning uh, just because here comes the top of the order the third time around he got crucified for doing this the first time uh, in game two um, and you know obviously their bullpen was tired in part because their starters weren't going deep in the games because Rich Hill kept getting pulled while he was pitching well after four innings um, Roberts actually got booed by his home crowd in Game 6 of the World <laughs> Series, which I'd never seen before. Like, usually when a home crowd is booing their their team, it's like when they're the Phillies or the Padres or something. Like, you're, this is a 104-win team who's, you know, two wins away from winning the championship, and the crowd boos the guy. Um, it, it's just, you know... That kind of courage of conviction was something that we hadn't seen before, uh, or seen much of. And in they the won that season. game, so, by the way. And they did win yeah. the game, right? You know, the bullpen was fantastic. And like, for all the talk of like, you can't run a bullpen this way, from the moment, uh, that Rich Hill was removed, the Dodger bullpen didn't give up another run in the entire series. <laughs> like, uh, like, you know, Moro, Jansen, uh, and Kenta Maeda were awesome in game six, and then, uh, Kershaw and Alex Wood and Moro and Jansen were really good in game seven, and Hugh Darvish was the one who gave up all the runs yesterday, so, for all the talk about, you know, Roberts has ran his bullpen into exhaustion and it would catch up at the end of the series, it didn't catch up with him at the end of the series, and he, he was kind of, um, vindicated in a sense, uh, except for the fact that his team lost the series. Um, but now I think, you know, there's, there's always gonna be that, um, desire to not get criticized, right? And so like if, if KJ Hinch had put Ken Giles on the mound and he blew another game, Hinch would have been vilified because the, yeah, incorrect human belief is that recent performance is the strongest predictor of what a player's going to do in the postseason. And people, you know, like there's still people, uh, today talking about how the, you know, or in the chat last night talking about how you Darvish shouldn't have started the game. The Dodgers should have gone with Clayton Kershaw on two days rest because apparently you Darvish is now a bad pitcher. Like the, it doesn't matter that you Darvish has been a top 15 starter since he got to the big leagues. It was like really good even after he got to Los Angeles was excellent in the first two rounds of the playoffs. Like he had one bad start in game three and people are like, wow, oh, you shouldn't trust you Darvish anymore. Like this level of irrational recency bias exists in the human nature and it's I think very difficult for even the most reasonable um, you know understanding baseball manager to not feel that and to not want to be criticized by that if he goes against that so you know I think Roberts pulling Hill was the most um, impressive 
kind of anti-recency bias, anti, um, it just kind of going against what the expectation that he would, what, of what, how he would manage. Um, but in the end, you know, I think both Hinch, Roberts, and every manager in baseball is still, they still feel that pressure of, well, this guy was bad, you should do something else. Or, you Darvish was torched in game three, you shouldn't start him in game seven. It takes a serious commitment to, um, believing in your process, as Robert says, uh, to not let that affect your decision making. Yeah, and I guess, I guess it, you bring up a point which I hadn't fully entertained yet, but which makes sense, which is, which is whether or not you think Ken Giles can, is gonna pitch well for you, right? Do you actually think there's a sort of added risk because if he doesn't pitch well, it's not only that you, you know, potentially lose the game, it's also that you also have to contend with all of the nonsense right. and, beyond you it. You know, as well. from a soft skill standpoint, you might have to deal with did you just ruin Ken Giles' career, right? Like, you could argue that, like, there's a cost to, uh, so I can remember, like, Young Ho Kim, right? Like, he was a really good reliever for Arizona for. Oh, quite a while. Like he was, you know, not not the best reliever in baseball, but like one of the best relievers in baseball for a while. And he had a couple notable postseason meltdowns, and then he basically just lost it. And we, you know, we can't say exactly what causation is, but like the there's probably something to the idea that if you put Ken Giles on the mound in Game Seven after what he'd already done in the World Series, and he blew that game too, and like literally there was no one else to blame for the Astros losing the World Series except for Ken Giles, that might have had significant negative impacts on the rest of his career. At least now, they won the World Series, he gets a clean start next year, potentially not in Houston, they might trade him, who knows. But at least he, Ken Giles still has a chance to go make a name for himself that isn't the guy who cost Houston the World Series. So, um, you know, I, I think that I would have used Ken Giles last night, probably, but I think that there's at least some argument for a humanitarian reason to be like, <laughs> I don't want to bury this guy's career. When he's like 27, 28 years old, he could potentially still have a really good career in front of him. I don't want this guy to go down for the guy who cost our team the series. Yeah, I have a question, and, and this is a, having to do a bit with this sort of uh, this phenomenon regarding Ken Giles, um, but as it pertains in this case to Cody Bellinger. The, the, the swings that Cody Bellinger was taking... Uh, in Game Seven, I mean, he appeared in a in a number of cases to be almost entirely lost at the plate, right? Yeah, and it, I mean, it looked that way early in the series too. Okay, right. So, so it yeah. was throughout, and I think he ended up through the postseason. It, it was nearly a fifty percent strikeout rate, right? After yeah, yeah. certainly exhibiting some issues with contact during the regular season, but but it but not uh, certainly not inordinate relative to to how hard he hits the ball, either, you know. Uh, I guess what I'm curious is, do you think that what, what was happening with Bellinger, for example, do you think it was it was a product of the you know the, the magnitude of the stage, um, or do you think it was simply a kind of thing that occurs to players all the time, but happens to be but happens to be magnified because everybody's watching just the one game as opposed to you know, say the same amount of people, but scattered over, you know, 30 baseball teams. Yeah, I mean, I think Bellinger's a really good example of how uh, we take the results of, you know, a very small sample and we extrapolate um, wildly beyond that. So, like, I think Bellinger started the series 0 for 13 with 8 strikeouts. And heading into game 4, I think it was at that point, people were like, well, you can't 
pet him clean up anymore. You have to move him down in the order. Like, he's clearly overmatched. The moment's too big for him. The Astros have exposed him. You can't count on this guy. You should, you know, potentially even bench him. Like, there are people who were suggesting in the chat last night that Cody Bellinger be removed from the game. Um, because he looked so terrible. And then Cody Bellinger went on to hit two doubles and a home run and, like, you know, basically fix himself in games four, or games five and six, four, five and six, whatever it was the series in Houston. Cody Bellinger was really good. And he was, like, one of the main parts of why the Dodgers offense started working. Um, and then, you know, game seven, Cody Bellinger looked lost again, right? So, like, uh, there were, like, multiple narratives going on within the seven day stretch of Cody Bellinger of, like, this guy's broken, the Astros have figured him out. Oh, wait a minute, he's redeemed himself, he's changed his swing. This is the maturation of a young player where you're seeing the blossoming of a superstar. I think uh, I saw Alex Rodriguez and, and David Ortiz and uh, Frank Thomas talking after one game about how for a 22-year-old to be able to make this adjustment, what this says about him as a player, um, and then the adjustment immediately stopped working again. <laughs> and so I think um, when you kind of look at the arc of what we thought about what Cody Bellinger was during the series, it should remind us that we just don't know what we're talking about. Like, all we're really saying is, like, you struck out some, you have the kind of swing that looks bad when you swing and miss because you take this huge cut, and a lot of times you don't, you're not even all that close to it when you're swinging over a ball, especially a breaking ball down and in. Um, you know, it looked, it looks easy on TV to just be like, stop swinging your curveballs down and in, but like, if, if it was that easy, we would all be in the big leagues, and guys that threw curveballs would suck. Um, so I think, Bellinger, to me, is a good example of the fact that, like, almost every postseason narrative you're told is garbage. I would declare, as I frequently do, I would um, mitigate that sort of uh, sentiment. I would say uh, not garbage necessarily, but um, lacks uh, lacks merit. <laughs> lacks uh, objective reasoning or, or uh, evidence seems more for polite, why you should believe polite. it. It's a story that someone wants to tell you to make the product they are selling you more entertaining. <clears throat> um, let me ask you uh, one final thing. Uh, is it, by way a bit of previewing, um, obviously, m- you know, a number of our conversations to follow after this one uh, uh, will. Well, concern uh, free agents and trades and that sort of thing. Um, we are now in the midst of crowdsourcing uh, free agent contracts for the offseason. I think you're going to have your free agent, your top, whatever, top 50 or 75. I don't know how many you're going to do. Do you, do you know how many you're going to do? No. no. <laughs> probably 50. Okay, yeah. I think that's probably yeah. safe. Yeah. Uh, you'll be doing that next week sometime, it looks like. Uh Today I happened to uh, be – I published the ballot for some starting pitchers. And in quick succession, uh, there was Michael Pineda, CC Sabathia, and Masahiro Tanaka. Um, Pineda and Sabathia are definitely free agents. Uh, Tanaka, of course, has an opt-out clause, um, which will allow him to, to what, forego the final three years and 60-something million maybe? 66 billion, I think. Something like that, yeah. Um but if he does that, um, that I was um, well, it became quite obvious that the that the Yankees starting rotation will look much different in 2018 than it uh, did. I guess it points to Sierra Pineda, but he was out for a lot of the second half, right? So yeah, um, that maybe doesn't count. But of course, Sebastian Tanaka were there for for much of it, and Pineda was there for much of the first half. Is that are are they are let's see. The money that they'll be saving from, or that they would be saving from losing that triumvirate, 
Does that compensate for the fact that they're losing those three pitchers, all of whom, you know, had a certain amount of value this year? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, like, assuming that they reallocate even most of the money that they spent on those guys, they might not reallocate all of it because they're trying to get on the luxury tax. But if you say, okay, we paid those guys, those three guys got like 50 million between them this year, uh, roughly, might have been 55 million. If they spend 40 million of that, you can get probably the same amount of value you got. Because um, Tanaka actually wasn't that great this year. He was uh, better in the postseason, but in the regular season he had a home run problem. There was a lot of talk that he wasn't going to use the opt-out up until his postseason dominance because he just wasn't very good this year, uh, at least in terms of results. His peripherals were fine, but he developed a home run problem that, um, you know, cost his team some games. And so, uh, if you know, if they say, look, you know, we're going to let Tanaka leave, they would have enough money just by letting that trio leave and reallocating the money to sign Yu Darvish and another pitcher. And, like, you know, despite Yu Darvish's down World Series performance, Yu Darvish is still the best pitcher on the market. Um, they could go restock their rotation very easily with the money that they're saving from letting Sabathia and Tanaka walk, or they could just resign them both because they're the Yankees and they can do that kind of well, thing. Well, Tanaka's not there, and the other two aren't either. I guess, what, it's Severino, Gray, and then... Yeah, Jordan Montgomery is still around. Yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jordan Montgomery. They're gonna they're gonna do have I mean, a three man rotation. Chad Green. Well, Chad Green could get stretched back out. I mean, they have like some upper upper level pieces, um, but you know they're they don't necessarily have guys that you'd say like, oh yeah, we want this guy pitching in a playoff series. Like even Jordan Montgomery is not necessarily a guy you want to slot into your playoff rotation next mm-hmm. year. So realistically, they probably want to go get two arms and have Montgomery as their number five, so they can say, look, if everyone's healthy going into next year, our playoff rotation could be. Gray, Severino, and these two outside acquiries, and then we'd have Montgomery either like to flex to the bullpen or to be a four starter if someone gets hurt or something. Um, but yeah, I would expect the Yankees to acquire a couple of pitchers this way. I didn't ask a question uh, you know, with players who seem like they're going to receive a qualifying offer or there's a 50-50 chance or something slightly less than a 50-50 chance. I will say, do you think this player will receive a qualifying offer? I didn't ask that question to CC Sabathia. Is that all right? Do you think, is there any chance he's going to receive a qualifying offer? Yeah, I think I think he probably will. I mean, well, I think oh. the what's well, so the qualifying offer this year? I think it's seventeen six. Seventeen four. Yeah, seventeen four. Seventeen seventeen four. I think the Yankees would take Sabathia back at one year, seventeen million dollars. Like uh, someone asked me in the chat a couple weeks ago, or maybe last week, what I thought Sabathia would get, and I estimated two years and thirty million because it's uh, close to what John. I think John Lackey got two thirty two a couple years ago. Is like a similar kind of back end older starter at the end of his career who throws strikes and can eat innings but isn't necessarily going to be an ace. Um, and so I think Sabathia with his postseason performance, uh, probably reminded some people that he's not done yet. He's still got some life left in him. So if you're choosing between 117 and 230, I think you take 117 if you're the team. Well, I didn't ask it, Cameron. Yeah, that's right. You always screw up the crowdsourcing in some way. Yeah, well, this would be the, that would be the most minor error that I've made in some, yeah. some years. I, we, we really don't know. I guess we can remove what? We can remove Justin Upton from the list at this point. Yeah, he's uh, no longer a free agent. He signed an extension that basically is very – isn't it very similar to his current deal, except it's just another – They just added – they added $18 million to the end of his deal. Like, they just – here's one eighteen to the back end. Here you go. And then they redistributed the money a little bit, but – okay. Yeah. Did they? They just gave him an extra year. Did the Angels free up payroll coming into this off season? Which I mean, I guess the off season is yeah, here. Started today. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think they had some money coming off the books uh, this year. Like the maybe the Josh Hamilton contract might be over. Yeah. Well, something to look into, isn't it? 
something, you know, something something that I'll know next week better. Yeah, I guess so. Well, yeah, because for I was, the last uh, month I've been focused on the playoffs, and then like to rudely today the Angels were like, "Here's the off season; it's upon you." And it's like, "Calm down." I'm still thinking about the World Series. Yeah, well, yeah. It's a strange, uh, strange period in between. Okay, well, uh, Dave Cameron, you have fulfilled your obligation to FanGraphs Audio. I am happy to hear that. Okay, all right, very good. That has been Dave. What? Well, no, what do I say? I say thank you for that. I say thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome, you Carson Stooley. Stooley. Uh, and then I say, uh, that has been managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.